Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. HBO's miniseries Chernobyl has been a critical and popular success. The five-part drama concludes tonight. We're going to chew on the lessons it teaches about nuclear power, the Soviet Union, and human nature. First, let's hear a clip from Chernobyl. Here, um, wait, we were going... Later, you'll hear a clip from Chernobyl. Um, We're going to uh, introduce our guests and talk about the series. And we'll take a few phone calls on Chernobyl if you've been watching and have some thoughts on Chernobyl. The number is 312-923-9239. With me is Dan Hrihorchuk. He is Professor Emeritus and Director of Global Environmental Health at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And he served as a consultant for the Ukrainian Ministry of Health regarding the lasting medical effects of the Chernobyl disaster. How are you, Dan? Good to talk with you. I'm great. Good afternoon. Also with me is Arnie Gunderson. He's a former nuclear industry executive and engineer who now critiques the nuclear industry at the Fairwinds Energy Education Organization. Thanks a lot for joining us, Arnie Gunderson. Yeah. Hi, Jerome. Hi, Dr. Harry Hochuk. Thank you very much. You know, I wonder, we thought it would be interesting to have two people who know a lot about the industry to to kind of critique the series and think about it a little bit. And I'm sure sometimes it seems um, kind of reductive of things that are, you know, if you know a lot about it. But sometimes uh, it can be really satisfying to see something explained. Um, Arnie, how did you like the series? How did you like the presentation here? You know, I, I've I've always understood it technically, so I've always understood it in my head. But I think the series really got it into my heart. Um, you know, to you really feel the, uh, the 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 courage and the triumph of courage over technology and the and the fear and the chaos. Uh, all of that, I, I, I really discounted in my technical head of you know positive void coefficients and stuff like that. So it took me out of my head and put me in my heart. All right, that's a great uh, way to look at it, Dan. How did you view it as someone who comes at it from a healthcare angle? I was uh, very impressed with the series. I think the producers went to great lengths to keep it as uh, accurate as possible, and it really is accurate. Uh, there's only a few uh, instances where they may deviate from actual events or characters, but overall, I was very impressed. Well, uh, let's go to that clip that we uh, were going to go to before. Here is Valery Legasov, Deputy Director of the Soviet Nuclear Institute, played by Jared Harris. And he's uh, challenging the Communist Party officials on what they've heard from the, on the ground on the, about the Chernobyl explosion. And in the scene, David Denik plays the Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev, and Stellan Skarsgård plays his deputy, Boris Shersherbina. Page three, the section on casualties. Uh, A fireman was severely burned on his hand by a chunk of smooth black mineral on the ground outside the reactor building. Smooth black mineral. Graphite. There's there's graphite on the ground. Well, there there was a a tank explosion. There's debris. Of what importance that could be? There's only one place in the entire facility where you will find graphite. Inside the core, if there's graphite on the ground outside, it means it wasn't a control system tank that exploded. It was the reactor core. It's open. Um, Comrade Sherbina. Comrade General Secretary, I can assure you that Professor Legazov is mistaken. Bukhana reports that the reactor core is intact 
And as for the radiation... Yes, 3.6 Rontgen, which, by the way, is not the equivalent of one chest X-ray, but rather 400 chest X-rays. That number's been bothering me for a different reason, though. It's also the maximum reading on low-limit decimeters. They gave us the number they had. I think the true number is much, much higher. If I'm right, this fireman was holding the equivalent of four million chest X-rays in his hand. Mr. Legasov, there's no place for alarmist hysteria. It's not alarmist if it's a fact. Well, I don't hear any facts at all. All I hear is a man I don't know engaging in conjecture, in direct contradiction to what has been reported by party officials. I'm, uh, I apologize. I didn't mean, uh... Please, may I express my concern as as calmly and as respectfully as... Professor Legasso. Horace, I will allow it. That's from the HBO miniseries Chernobyl. It concludes tonight. And Arnie Gunderson, you know, before you were talking about how you, you know, knew it technically as a disaster, but you didn't, you know, it, it gave you a lot of heart. But it sounds like they are not cheap on the technical you know when just listening to that clip you can hear a lot of technical things going on and a lot of technical data being in and transmitted they're not shy no it, it's it's right on technically um and uh, but but it it portrays that clip especially um portrays i think two things the chaos uh, at the beginning of the uh, of the disaster and and, and separately how the bureaucracy, um, especially the, the, the nuclear experts, uh, try to downplay the significance of it. And, and that both that chaos and downplaying the significance of it uh, is, is the same thing that happened to Fukushima. So I don't think we've learned a whole heck of a lot in 30 years. Um, Dan, do you have some thoughts about uh, the technical aspects of this? I, I think that, um, as Ernie points out, that they're fairly... Uh, accurate, and I think that uh, they do a pretty good job of explaining uh, what happened to the general public. I think we'll learn more uh, when we watch the fifth uh, part of the series, uh, the trial. We'll they'll probably go through what happened uh, step by step. Uh, but overall, I think uh, it, it's right on. Uh, I imagine, you know, part of the drama for you, Dan, has been the, the health aspects of this um, it's a very emotional thing that I, I'm not sure gets portrayed in the news the, the way it can in a drama. Were there sections of this that were particularly satisfying to you as a physician? Uh, yes, there's been a lot of debate over the uh, health consequences of Chernobyl. And uh, what the series does is really, uh, I think, portray well and, and uh, dramatize uh, the acute health effects, the acute radiation syndrome. I think uh, one of the most poignant uh, sections for me was when uh, the the wife of the uh, who's pregnant of the fireman who's in a uh, a hospital in Moscow suffering from extensive radiation syndrome. Uh, how uh, she tells him that uh, she's pregnant, and in the end, the baby uh, lands up uh, dying from the radiation as well. I mean, that really, uh, for me, uh, hit home about. Uh, on, a, on a personal level, uh, the horror of what can happen. And that was a very real-life example. That was a directly drawn from real life, this firefighter who was going to leave for Belarus the morning of the explosion, but ended up running into the explosion at 1.30 a.m. in the morning. And he was, you know, his wife was pregnant the whole bit. That was all true. Right. Um, you know, one of the other aspects of it that was uh, interesting 
um, was the human um, shoveling that they did on top of the roof. And they were going to – they started doing this with robots, but then they decided they would use bio-robots as they called them, um, people – you know, in protective gear, but you could only run out there for a minute and shovel debris. And this is another thing that that really happened. Um, it's a, a kind of an amazing thing. Um, Dan, what were the what were it, was it? I mean, uh, how can you even follow the decision making there? Well, the the amount of radiation that uh, you're exposed to depends how far you are from uh, the source, and then uh, how strong the field is and how much time you spend in an exposed area. So they had probably determined for themselves what the acceptable exposure limits were uh, that wouldn't uh, kill someone, hopefully a lot uh, lower than that. And then they would send them out for a certain number of seconds and call them back. And there was that one scene where you see uh, one of the workers that was shoveling uh, the debris stumble and fall, and then he exceeds his his time limit. So I think they brought that home uh, very well. Um, Arnie, what did you think about that when you watched that scene? You know, the, the nuclear industry now keeps workers on a clock when they're in high radiation areas, and, and that's what was happening here. I, I agree that uh, these guys had you know, less than five minutes, and in many cases, less than two minutes to do their job, and, and then they essentially retired forever. There were hundreds of thousands of these uh, liquidators used in the uh, in the cleanup, and uh, their their exposures were very short term, and uh, and and then they they left the site forever. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them have been lost in the uh, bureaucratic records, and it's hard to determine their health effects. You know, thirty years on. I'm talking with Arnie Gunderson. He's a former nuclear industry executive with Fairwinds Energy Education and Dr. Dan Hrihorchuk. He is a physician uh, with the Global Health and Environmental Program at the University of Illinois who studied Chernobyl for many years and the effects of Chernobyl. And we're discussing the series Chernobyl that's been on HBO. If you want to join us in the conversation, I've been watching uh, the number to call is 312-923-9239-312-923-9239. Um, I wanted to play another clip from the series, and it's um, one where Emily Watson is, and Emily's character is one of the not-real characters in in the drama. And some people have criticized it. Some people have said, well, it's kind of essential. But let's hear a bit of her uh, in this scene as Ulana Homyuk. She is a composite character, and she challenges the party in Minsk. Her uh, character is a nuclear physicist who's the first civilian to learn that something is amiss in Chernobyl. I must tell you, this is why no one likes scientists. When we have a disease to cure, where are they? In a lab, noses in their books, and so grandma dies. But when there isn't a problem, they're everywhere, spreading fear. I know about Chernobyl. Oh? I know that the core is either partially or completely exposed. Whatever that means. And that if you don't immediately issue iodine tablets and then evacuate the city, hundreds of thousands of people are going to get cancer, and God knows how many more will die. Yes, very good. There has been an accident at Chernobyl, but I've been assured there is no problem. I'm telling you that there is. I prefer my opinion to yours. I'm a nuclear physicist. Before you were deputy secretary, you worked in a shoe factory. Yes, I worked in a shoe factory. And now I'm in charge. 
to the workers of the world. That's another scene from Chernobyl on HBO. Um, Dan Rihorchuk, uh, what did you think about the character of Ulena Homyuk, a kind of historical composite character? And there she's, you know, putting the screws to this official. Uh, yeah, she is a, a fictional character, but but I think that uh, there were a lot of people like her um, that uh, were aware of what was happening later and very concerned about what was happening and trying to get to the to the truth. And I think in a five part miniseries, uh, it's hard to uh, get the whole story across. So I guess the producers created the character for uh, for the for the narrative line, uh, but. Uh, I, I've known people like her. I've known uh, nuclear uh, physicists from Belarus. Uh, I've worked with them. And uh, she comes across to me like a very real uh, character. You know, the Arnie was talking earlier about uh, comparisons with uh, Fukushima. And in all of these instances, uh, do the authorities kind of uh, end up defending I don't know, the system, for some reason, they're, they're defensive about liability or want to sweep it under the rug. Or, what, I mean, there's a lot of acute conversation about how this is a condemnation of the Soviet Union and the Soviet system. And certainly the, it has its, um, its own unique applications in this instance. But um, how do you read that, Dan? I mean, do you, do you see it as a uh, critique of the Soviet Union or, or kind of a more broad truth that – in these circumstances, you're going to have these kind of conflicts. Well, um, it's definitely an indictment of the Soviet system. But the problem is that um, lately, at least in the, in the West, and especially in our country, uh, you know, when government starts to not tell people the truth uh, or create alternative facts, uh, then you can get these kinds of uh, horrific effects. So I think uh, the, the lesson isn't just one about the Soviet system. I think the lesson is one about the responsibility that government and the state has uh, towards its citizens and to provide them with, with the truth and be as transparent uh, as possible. All right. We want to weave in a couple of listeners here at 312-923-9239. Mark, you're on WBEZ. Hi, Jerem. What, Jerem, thank what, you. What would you like about the series here? Um, well, like your um, folks were saying, I think it's, it seems to reveal very consistent with what the reports were saying in the news at that time, and, and it affected me emotionally as well. It was a very frightening thing, the whole idea of this invisible um, killer. Is, are there things that, uh, how did you like the Emily Watson character? Yeah, it does. She was uh, great. My uh, my one concern with that character is I know she's composite, but my concern is that there's a time now in America where we uh, think that many think that a hero is going to be the one to solve all the problems. Usually, it's a collective or consortium of many that come together to solve an issue, and I thought. It was a little dangerous to have a single character play hero or heroine in this case, as opposed to explaining how it was really hundreds and hundreds of nuclear scientists who came to these conclusions. 
Yeah, uh, it's a it's a good point. Um, do you have some reaction to that, Arnie Gunderson? You know, I think she represents the integrity of the scientific community in the Soviet Union um, against an entrenched, you know, communist bureaucracy. And uh, uh, I, I would agree that she that there were many scientists who understood the significance and who um, who spoke out. But you know, in a six or seven hour uh, movie, it's hard to get hundreds of scientists doing it. So she represents, uh, I think, integrity. Um, I wanted to talk some about the you know gigantic costs of Chernobyl, and I mentioned this evening's uh, final presentation in the series. We'll we'll kind of get into that, but it's. Um, it's long-lasting effects, and, and Dan, you've been studying this for years, and um, people have a hard time quantifying the health effects of Chernobyl because they roll, just keep rolling out in, um, in cancers throughout the region. Can you give us some idea about the long-lasting effects of this? Well, uh, the best uh, estimates that I've seen is that other than the acute health effects that we talked about, uh, there were about 6,000 cases of thyroid cancer, uh, mainly in children because children are more susceptible uh, from exposure to the uh, radioiodine, uh, that cloud that went through. Uh, we also know uh, there's some new data showing an increased risk of uh, leukemia uh, in the liquidators. Uh, the liquidators are also showing um, uh, cataract formation. And one of the uh, sort of scientific uh, things that Chernobyl taught, taught us is to lower the dose of radiation uh, that leads to cataracts, and it's had a lot of, uh, I think, benefit for, for medical personnel. But other than the uh, direct radiologic effects, there were uh, huge uh, psychological effects. There were huge uh, socioeconomic effects. There were close to 400,000 environmental refugees, people who had to leave their home, people who were relocated, uh, people that were uh, stigmatized. You know, we saw with Katrina, it wasn't just the hurricane itself, but everything that happened afterwards where people had to leave their, home, uh, leave their homes. So all of these effects together, uh, uh, I think, show us what the, what the real toll of Chernobyl is. And, you know, just looking at the cancers, uh, the, the upper limit I've seen is somewhere about 100,000 additional cancers, uh, but most estimate about maybe 25,000 additional cancers. That's an amazing number. I mean, it's just astounding. Uh, yes, it is, especially if you're one of those unfortunate people who suffers those effects. Let's go to Gail in Homer Glen. You're on WBEZ. Thanks. Hi, thanks for having me on. And I am the board president of Nuclear Energy Information in Chicago Information Service. And, I, you know, one thing that I really wonder about is in a state where we have the most nuclear reactors and the most nuclear waste from reactors, I'm still surprised that people don't understand the magnitude of a nuclear accident. I'm so glad that this movie has come out and made a number of people a younger generation, as well as an older generation that I thought was more informed uh, about a nuclear accident, realize what could happen. So I'm wondering if uh, your guests could comment on why they think that is. Why do they think that there is this gap in knowledge of the magnitude of not only just Chernobyl, but Fukushima and the attempts by the nuclear industry to normalize the accident, downplay accidents, 
you know, they want to put the Olympics on and have baseball in Fukushima and make it all seem very uh, downplayed. And I'm wondering if there's any commentary on that. Thank Ar- you. Uh, Arnie Gunderson? Um, yeah, you know, the the um, the portrayal at, at, at Chernobyl, I think, was, was accurate. You know, the, the KGB was involved real early to try to uh, minimize the consequences. And, and, of course, Gorbachev has said that uh, in his memoirs that the uh, Soviet Union collapsed not because of perestroika, but because of, uh, of Chernobyl. Um, I had a, a Naoto Khan, the former prime minister of Japan, and I um, had some speaking engagements together. And, and we were discussing uh, how the bureaucracy uh, informed him. And, and he told me that his regulator and Tokyo Electric um, didn't tell him the truth and were not timely with the information. So I think it's an ingrained um, problem within the, uh, uh, the, the nuclear industry. And the younger people have forgotten you know, Chernobyl or Three Mile Island. And, you know, Fukushima was a long way away. And uh, um, I, I, I think their focus has been on um, uh, global warming issues. And the, the issue of CO2 buildup in the atmosphere has been co-opted by the, the nuclear industry. And it's wrong. It's, it's way too expensive a solution. But uh, the kids are ignoring the dangers of nuclear um, because it, it, most of those disasters happened a long time before they were born. You know, I, one of the things about Chernobyl was uh, it had a human element to it. One of the reasons, and I think it was obscured at the time because there was so much cover-up at the time, but there were human problems that went wrong there that led to that disaster. It was, um, it's something that make you think. Yeah, there was um, the, the, the tests that were done uh, were, were done at the wrong power levels that caused the, that caused the problem, but I, I you know I, I have a nuclear operator's license and I hate to blame the operators. There, there's so much going on, um, and, and you know they had an inherent a system with inherent flaws, and uh, as I said before, sooner or later in any foolproof system, the fools are going to exceed the proofs, and that happened to Fukushima and Chernobyl too. Arnie Duncan or Arnie Gunderson is a former nuclear industry executive and engineer who critiques the nuclear industry at Fairwinds Energy Education. Dr. Dan Rehorchuk is a professor emeritus and director of global environmental health at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He served as a consultant to the Ukrainian Ministry of Health regarding the lasting effects of the Chernobyl disaster. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about HBO's miniseries Chernobyl, which concludes tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll hear from some uh, local survivors from Chernobyl in the Chicago area. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Before the break, we discuss some of the real-life effects of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. A miniseries about the disaster is winding down its run on HBO tonight. Critics have raved about some of the dramatized stories in the TV show, but a few years ago, Worldview spoke with three Chicago residents in Ukrainian village who lived through the disaster. Tatiana Shelohova and her daughters Mila and Gina lived just 60 miles from Chernobyl in Ukraine's capital city of Kiev. In the first days, most people didn't even know the disaster happened. Mila and Jania went on a camping trip with hundreds of other kids. I remember that when I came to the woods to pick up my children and a group of children which were like friends with them and I told the officials there that something happened and children have to be returned to the city but they told me we had no direction to go to the city and they stay, all the students, they stay in the woods nobody was returned, just my group of kids so I took my kids and those friends to my house because most of the parents, they left for holidays and they weren't home, so children had no place to go. And these children, little children, they stay with us in my um, apartment. And my friend recommended me to wash out all the children and all the clothes and change clothes. When official announcement was made in Kiev, people start panic and start uh, taking everybody out of Kiev. In Soviet Union, not so many people had private cars, so the only public transportation was at the time a train. And people start attack train. There, of course, no tickets were available for any trains in any directions. And so what we did, we took uh, not train which goes like from town to town, but like suburb train, like we have metro here. And uh, we took this metro to the next district, where the next connection from another district. So like little by little, we start moving toward uh, uh, Saint Petersburg, evacuating our children. And the panic was so big in Kiev that people literally attacked trains and there was an accident, they, they knocked down train car. There at the train station, everybody who came from south, from Ukraine, of Belarus, Everybody was inspected there with uh, Geiger counter. And, uh, of course, we wash uh, uh, all the clothes from children. And when they count how much of radiation, they throw away uh, all the shoes, children's shoes, because there was so much radiation, it could be even washed or disinfect. Well, they were my first pair. And I just got them. They were green and orange, and they were adorable. I loved them with all my heart, and I never wanted to part with them. And I happened to wear them on the camping outing in Kiev when we were all collected by my mother and uh, packed up and sent on the train off to Leningrad. So when we arrived in Leningrad at the train station, I remember very vividly going through what now would probably the most, the closest to it would be the security at the airport. 
But back then, nothing of that sort existed. So it was a little bit odd for a 12-year-old kid to have to go through some sort of a booth with scanners and screeners. And not that we were completely stripped of everything we had on, but I believe they went down to probably our underwear and uh, held up all of the clothing that we had. I don't recall what I ended up wearing leaving the booth, but I would just say they were not my clothes. Whomever the screeners, the officers were, they were very strict about letting in pieces of clothing and items that had higher radiation levels that were allowed. So back to my trainers, yes, I had to leave them with them. Had to, they just threw them in a big box with other people's, other kids' shoes. And off they went to buy my trainers. used to pick up berries, mushrooms in woods and fish. In Ukraine we didn't do that either. Uh, so we tried buying imported groceries like uh, uh, meat and fish, not what is made in Ukraine. Actually after Chernobyl occurred, uh, all the stores were closed, I think literally closed, like doors were closed. Before, you know, like in stores, people open doors, inviting people. So, but after that, all the doors were closed. But because our stores at that time didn't have air conditioners and it was very hot summer, so it has to be a little bit draft there. So what they did, I remember, they opened doors, but they put stripes of plastic over doors so air wouldn't come in so much, just a little bit, so people would come in and out. And, uh, of course, there was no special treatment, no special medicine given to people. And people tried to recover after that the way they wanted. So they took uh, Yodairus, I remember, and then uh, somebody recommended us to drink red wine. They said that somehow helps to flash radiation out of your body. So it was so so unacceptable because government didn't take care of us at all. At the cemetery in Kiev, there is special area where buried all the people who died in Chernobyl. All these people, they buried there like three meters down. It's about nine feet down. So they were buried like nuclear waste. You know, people get nervous very much if they don't know what happened. 
if the situation would be clear there and we were, would be told what exactly happened and how we have to handle it, it would be much easier. But that thing that we didn't know anything, so we didn't know how dangerous is it. Maybe we underestimated, maybe we overestimated this. But the most important thing, I think, that it has to be informed. People have to know what's going on. And um, I'm so impressed with what happened, for instance, in Japan, how quick people were evacuated, that the whole entire city was evacuated within one day. So it's impossible to do in Kiev. Looks like Japan was all prepared for that. So nobody knew that it happened, but it happened within one day. And in Kiev, it's, I mean, nobody was evacuated there. As a kid going through an experience of changing places, changing friends, changing schools, changing places to live, learning how to eat or not to eat, learning how to play or not to play in the leaves in the fall, knowing that dust could be dangerous and having to keep your windows closed made me more aware of things that a normal kid probably wouldn't be aware of. I remember being very devastated because my parents told me that I couldn't be in, out in the rain and I couldn't be walking out in the fallen leaves for the rest of my life, pretty much. That was my understanding. <laughs> and that was devastating for me. <laughs> I think more about details. I, uh, I am probably more aware of the foods that I eat and where they come from and why they are the way they are. Overall, um, did it make me a better or not such a better person? I don't think so. I am who I am. But the memories and the experience just added, I guess it's an added value to who I am today. That was Tatiana Shalhalova and her daughters Mila and Gina. They lived just 60 miles from Chernobyl in Ukraine's capital city of Kiev when Chernobyl exploded. And that was put together by Julian Haida, Worldview's Julian Haida, and he scored it with music about the Chernobyl uh, situation. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about Indian food and making it at home. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Indian food is delicious, but lots of people are afraid to cook it at home. WBEZ's Monica Eng is here with her Food Monday segment, and it's good to see you, Monica. Great to see you guys. Now, um, tell us, you, you brought a friend, and she's got a lot of Indian food with her. It's really great. Yes, it's a newbie singla. Uh, I knew her as a journalist, but now she's like a food maven, best-selling cookbook <laughs> author, uh, Indian as apple pie, Indian slow cooker recipes. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, as, I, as I said, you know, when I knew you, you were a journalist, how did you make this journey to become like cooking queen? Well, I was uh, the morning reporter for CLTV for many years, and I got to say, I had young kids, and it was really tough leaving them. I know they wouldn't believe it now because I'm always like looking for opportunities to leave them <laughs> behind. They're teenagers now. But I just loved feeding them, and I loved cooking, and I learned how to cook from my grandfather in India from visiting him as I grew up outside of uh, Philadelphia. And I've always loved deep, deep flavor. And so I decided from reporting to take a little bit of a break, a reset, and write my first book and see how it would do, and just also in the process, write my blog, Indian as Apple Pie, and see, it was almost like a human experiment to see if I fed my kids Indian food, the food I loved growing up every day, would they embrace it? And it's been working. They do. And what about the rest of the country? It seems like the rest of the country is embracing the food as well. If you, there's uh, lots of new Indian places all over the place, but people don't seem to do that. Do it at home. They're afraid of. It seems too complex. It seems like there's too much stuff in there. Absolutely, and I think that's where having been a journalist comes into play, because our role as journalists, as reporters, is to break tougher, more complex things down so folks can actually understand them. And I think. That's that's why that connection between writing, food, understanding flavor, but also talking to folks as if um, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay not to know. Um, and also, there's a lot of things that I don't know. And when you come to it from that place, people are just more comfortable. You know, when you talk about like Indian slow cookers, what are your books? When you talk about a slow cooker, that breaks it down for people. People say, oh, slow cooker. I can do a slow cooker. Yeah, I've got one of those. Absolutely. And when I came to my current publisher with that idea, I got to say, he kind of laughed mm. and said, do you really want to be known as the woman who wrote the Crock-Pot cookbook? And I said, well, I, it's okay, because my mom actually raised us on slow cooker cooking. And when I wrote that book, we actually sold like close to 100,000 copies of that book alone. And that's why we knew there was an interest in the U.S. to understand how to cook Indian food, but in a simpler, more accessible way. And so is that your market, um, non-Indian people who are kind of like, oh, boy, this, this would be too hard, but you've broken it down for me? Or is the second generation Indian community also... So we started off with the market being non-Indians because they understood the crock pot. And we also captured middle America. So many Indian cookbooks and themes and restaurants capture the East Coast and the West Coast. But middle America always seems a little more daunting. But we captured that. And now we're capturing second gen Indian Americans because they're saying, guess what? I don't want to be like a newbie. I don't want to quit my day job to feed my kids. <laughs> so how do we do it? Guess what? We can put rajma. We can put chana. We can put um, sarsal Okay, kasat. tell me what these things are. <laughs> I never thought you'd ask, yeah. Monica. Um, so rajma is our red beans and rice, um, just delicious Punjabi red beans, kidney beans, 
in the crock pot, cook it all day, and it's done by the end of the day. Chana masala is chickpeas that you probably get from the restaurant, and I teach you in my book how to make them restaurant style without all the fat and the cream because we don't really cook with a ton of fat and cream at home. Um, Wait a minute. I, I like the fat and the cream. You yeah. can add it. I've add, I, I haven't done it today for you, Jerome. If I'd known, I would have added more fat and cream just for you. But you can add it if you want to, but you don't have to is the key. I think that the thing that intimidates people is the spices. Can you break down Indian spices for us? Sure. And the key to know is um, I'm going to throw you both a quiz question that I start with at every class. What is the most common Indian spice that you know? Monica's exempt because she probably knows what it's not. What, what do you think of about, Jerome? I, cumin? I don't know. Hing? A lot of people say curry powder. Yeah. Would that be right? Let me just feed that yeah, to you, right? Okay. <laughs> curry powder, definitely. Of course. <laughs> that was the answer I was looking yeah. for. And that is not even a spice that we ever use in Indian cuisine. We use whole spices, cumin seed, uh, turmeric powder, coriander seed. And then we take all those whole spices, we roast them, we dry roast them first, and then we grind them down to become a chana masala, to become a chart masala. Chart is so delicious. You want to lick your fingers clean mm. like a little cat licks milk up. That's chart. That's in all the street foods. Um, my mouth's watering as I'm talking because I just... All right, but hang food. on. You just said grind up all the flowers. We're not grinding up all the flowers. Yeah. Well, all the all the all, all the, the spices. Seeds. I gr- meant to we're, say we're, we're grinding. The, nobody grinds them up. We got to throw them in. How do we do that? That's right. You do that by um, going and perching my spice plant. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So so you. So that's it's a great segue. So you you've developed your own spice blend. But you know, if you go to Devon, there are a ton of Indian spices. What's different about yours? Why would someone want to be taking a look at yours at Whole Foods? Sure. And I say, if you want to go to Devon and buy those blends and spices. They're great. Do that. But a little bit of a um, difference with mine are that they are roasted and ground here in the U.S. So I purchase spices that are coming in from a um, supplier from India. Obviously, we're not growing all that stuff here. But I am, I've got somebody who's actually roasting and grinding according to my recipes. They are authentic recipes. Um, my mother's approved after refusing to try my blends for a year. And now <laughs> she's totally convinced. And also another key is I don't add unnecessary salts. And I also don't add things like red food dye 40. So very clean labels. If that is important to you, then look for Indian as apple pie spices. Now, I understand you're going to be at Printer's Row uh, Lit Fest this weekend, I believe 345 on June 8th. Uh, Tell us, what are you going to be demoing? I am going to show you how to make a masala omelet. What? What's that? So a lot of people don't realize that very simple things, like we eat regular food too in the Indian community, so eggs. And I never think to eat my eggs any other way, honestly. I love them with a little bit of cumin seed in there, a little bit of gutta masala, some onion, some ginger, some cilantro, and red chilies, uh, red chili powder and green chilies. Now, I, I toned back the chilies for you today just because um, I, don't, I didn't know what your, mm-hmm. your heat levels were. And if you don't like heat at home, don't put it in there. But if you do, throw it in there if you can. I'm also going to demo a chickpea flour crepe. A lot of folks are looking for gluten-free options. Very simple to make. Get chickpea flour, put some water in there, some spices, some salt, and put it in that blender and just make crepes out of it. How popular is chickpea flour in Indian cooking? It's a regional. It's not 
always in all Indian? It's uh, super popular. Have you had pakoras or those fritters? Yes. Uh-huh. That is made out of chickpea flour. Oh, okay. And um, very common. And I always say, if you want to eat gluten-free in Indian cuisine, there's options that are not necessarily called gluten-free. They are just their own thing. So chickpea flour has just been something that we have used um, mostly in North Indian cuisine, but there are also ways to use it in South Indian cuisine and other regions of India as well. And another thing that's really hot right now is soca, S-O-C-C-A, and that's an Italian version of the chickpea flour pancake that you put stuff on top of. And it's called graham flour in some recipes? Exactly, yeah, and it's the black chickpea. And what you'll find is in the mainstream market, it's the folks that are selling chickpea flour, often that's from the white chickpea. Oh. But in the Indian grocery store, it is coming from a black chickpea, which is a little bit of a different consistency. You just have to kind of play with the amount of water to add if you're using the, um, the white chickpea flour. We're talking with Anupi Singla, and she is the CEO of Indian as Apple Pie and the author of best-selling titles, Indian Slow Cooker, Vegan Indian Cooking, and Indian for Everyone. Let's eat. What do we got? So All right. we've got some of that right in front of us. Yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I made some omelets for you this morning, and I'm just going to put them on the chickpea crap and um, serve that to you. As I continue to talk in my microphone. You just go ahead and use okay, your do I look hands okay? as okay. much as you need to. Well, while you're preparing it, um, I wanted to ask, uh, we've heard about this this spice called hing, uh, and it's got, a, it's got another name for it. What is hing, and does it really add some nice um, umami to your dishes? It, it does. So the idea of hing, which is asafoetida, or it's known on the street as devil's dung, oh. because when you take a smell of well, that's it... that's an appealing kind of it thing. It smells <laughs> kind of funny. They had me a devil's dung. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> the idea behind it is that um, it, is, it is used a lot in Ayurvedic cooking, right? So the idea is to make your food more digestible. So oftentimes when they talk about beans and how they're tougher to digest, the asafoetida used in your oil, just a pinch, will make your food easier to digest. And it really just tastes like leeks Hmm. in your food. So it it does not smell like that, like devil's dung going into uh, your meal. But, you know, when it's sitting on your shelf, sometimes it can have like a very interesting flavor profile so and smell. So you want to just kind of keep it covered. And you only use a pinch for your food to help with digestion. Okay. And is that the word, where the word fetid came from? I would imagine so. Interesting. Um, I'll have yeah, to look into it. that. So we're eating this uh, chickpea flour crepe with the masala omelet and a little bit of pickle on top. Did a little your... bit of achar, which okay. is pickle. What do you think, Jerome? You just had a it's bite. It's delicious. I would eat my eggs like this all the time. Wow. Exactly. Like... No one in Chicago has actually um, signed on to the concept of selling masala eggs yet, and I'm trying mm. to get them convinced <laughs> to do it. You know, there used to be a great egg place at the, at the Japanese market. They, they make a, a Japanese omelet, and it was the only one I could get in the city. Oh, at Mitsua, yeah. yeah. At Mitsua, and then, then, then they went away, and now I, I can't find a Japanese omelet. I can't find Indian eggs. Yeah. Where, where, what are we going to do? You're going to make it at home? We're going to make it at home. <laughs> You're going to come on Saturday to Brenner's Row. I'm going to show you how to do it. Wow. Are you do it at home? This is fantastic. You know, um, a lot of um, Indian dishes are becoming a lot more popular. 
I talked to actress and singer Zoe Deschanel at the Beard Awards and asked her for her, you know, her... her the best. barometer of popular, of course. <laughs> I asked her, she's a vegetarian, I asked for her, her from favorite... From the late 90s or something. Oh, stop. Come on. Her show was in the 2000s. Um, and she says she likes to make kitchity. And that's the yellow mung bean, yellow lentil? It can be any lentil or legume with rice. So kitchity in Hindi means all mixed up. So the idea is you're throwing all of that, the rice and the beans, into a pot with spices. And it's really for us like chicken noodle soup. So when we're sick and we have an upset stomach, we're making khichdi. So if someone says to me or I say to my family, I'm making khichdi tonight for dinner, they're all going, are you kidding me? No way. Who's sick? So in our culture, it's a little different. We love it. But it's one of those things where if you say you're going to make it to your kids, they're like, oh, no, rolling their eyes. But once they're eating it, they absolutely love it because it is delicious. Well, I've got to try some. I'm a vegetarian, so I eat a lot of Indian food. It's great. Yep, it's great if you are a vegetarian. What role does meat have in Indian food because it doesn't it's not necessary no it's not necessary I think it's key for a lot of Hindus that absolutely do not eat any meat at all and we don't need meat on our plates in the sense that vegetables in Indian cuisine shine right so meat often can be the sidebar and you have communities though in India that are heavy meat eaters. Even in Punjab, you've got in Kerala, you've got the Muslim community that is heavily um, into eating meat. However, here's the thing. They respect that many folks in their communities don't eat meat. So when we sit down at a table to eat, we have everything on the table for everyone. And that's what I always encourage folks to think about. In my own family, we have people that eat three to four different ways. An Indian community, that's okay. We really don't differentiate. We just make sure there's something on that table for everyone. And then we also don't use a lot of you know, meat broths for cooking our rice or cooking our dals. We use the spices to add all that flavor. Mm. Well, this is terrific, and I hope everybody tries cooking more Indian food at home. We're trying it a little more in our house. I had a, I had a cauliflower, um, aloo gobi Yep, recently. aloo gobi, yep, Perfect. That's pretty good. I love That's the pronunciation. Right. It's really mm-hmm. spot on. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Jerome is good at that. <laughs> uh, masterful. Now, well, thanks for joining us, and I hope people uh, check you out at the Printer's Row Literary Fest. You are going to be on June 8th at 6.45 to 4.15. You'll be bringing the eggs with you. 3.45 yeah. to 4.15. Yeah. Uh, Anupi Singla is the author of the best-selling titles Indian Slow Cooker, Vegan Indian Cooking, and Indian for Everyone, and you can. she is the CEO of Indian as Apple Pie. Your website is Indian as Apple Pie? It is. All right, great to meet you, and thanks for bringing Indian food. And thanks for having me. Thanks. Tomorrow on Worldview, we're going to have our annual bike show where we celebrate uh, the Bike to Work Week that's coming up. And I'll also get to talk with legendary cyclist George Christensen. He has cycled everywhere on the planet. He'll be calling in from France where he's previewing some of the Tour de France rides. He's wild camping and previewing Tour de France rides. He's also got a project in the U.S. to visit by bike every Carnegie Library. We will talk with one of the world's greatest cyclists tomorrow on Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.